Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm Alice Denby, Deputy Editor of CapEx. We talk a lot about housing on the site and on this podcast. Well, I mean, I say talk, but often it feels more like we're just screaming, build some bloody houses. But in policy terms, it often feels like we're stuck in a doom loop. Conservative MPs talk a good game about the need for housing anywhere but in their constituency, while Labour talk up discredited socialist ideas like rent controls. But this week, drama returned to the housing discourse as Secretary of State Michael Gove announced plans for dramatic expansions in Cambridge, Leeds and London. So is the housing shortage, which is the source of so many of this country's problems, from low productivity to population decline, about to be solved? To discuss this, I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, our Head of Housing at the Centre for Policy Studies, Samuel Hughes. So Samuel, just talk us through some of the key announcements this week. So we've got three things in the announcements. Uh, Leeds, Cambridge, London. So Leeds, it's mostly investment to support the council doing inner city regeneration. It's a sort of long-term plan to double the size of the city centre in Leeds. That's nice. That's good work. It's not game-changing. It's kind of a bit more funding and a bit more powers to do stuff that they're doing at the moment. London, there is investment in big brownfield schemes in East London. So Silvertown, Thamesmead, heavily contaminated sites um, in the Docklands or former military sites. Uh, which need lots of investment in infrastructure and remediation. Again, not game-changing. The numbers of homes we're talking about here is not very great. I mean, it's 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 60,000 or something, substantial number, but not addressing the London housing shortage fundamentally. The big one is Cambridge. Now, you know, we should say we know actually very little by way of details. There is this figure of 250,000 homes in circulation produced by the Sunday Times based on unclear sources. But in actual government announcements, we don't know the number of homes they're talking about. We don't know the development vehicle they're going to use. We don't know the site. It could all come to nothing. Nonetheless, they sound you know, really serious about it. And my understanding is, my own impression is they do mean business on this. They mean to radically expand Cambridge. And that, two good things about this. One is that Cambridge is one of the places where London's housing shortage is really concentrated. And we talk about a national housing shortage, but really we've got a housing shortage in London and towns in the commuter zones of those cities. So you, know, you can build a million homes in Merthyr Tidville or Sunderland, and that won't really have any effect on house prices in the southeast because very few people are going to move to those places, even if house prices are even lower than they are at the moment there, so just aren't jobs. Building homes in Cambridge goes much, much, much further than building them in other areas. So it is, you know, relative to the number of homes, it's a high-impact intervention. 
That having been said, we shouldn't really see Cambridge as like a solution to the country's housing shortage or even a model for a solution. It's massive central government intervention. If you try to do this everywhere, you would generate masses of resistance. Doing it as a kind of one-off in Cambridge is politically viable. A few local MPs will be very upset, but the other MPs aren't going to be too fussed about it. But it can't be routinized. For housing, it's like it's a fun one-off, but not a systemic solution. However, there is another kind of national problem. Like, the problem of Cambridge is a national problem, and that's a problem not so much about housing, but about Cambridge's research sector. So it's a world leading in technology and in life sciences. Lots of spin-out industries come from this, which are immensely important to the country's economy in the medium term. There is a threat that that will be strangulated by the lack of growth of Oxford and Cambridge. Um, the famous statistic is that Boston University added... 6 million square foot of lab space at the moment. Oxford and Cambridge produce about 300,000 square foot together in a given year. Order of magnitude less, and that will force them into relative decline and provincialize them in the medium term, and Britain will lose one of its key national assets. Currently are a world-leading country in certain areas here. So that is one of the country's big problems. And if the government like, delivers on this announcement, it actually has just solved one of the country's big problems. So, I mean, growing Cambridge is a big, you know, goes a long way. That problem will now go away for generations. This is actually a truncated version of a much more ambitious proposal, which was the Oxford-Cambridge arc, is it not? That this was going to be kind of mass building and deregulation in between the two universities and uniting both of their kind of research capacities. And Well, you know, truncated, I mean... If the 250,000 figure is for real, which means you're getting like 750,000 people, Cambridge has only got 150,000 people at the moment. Right? There's nothing pretty much maxed out what you can do with Cambridge. Mm. If that figure is for real, the government is saying, we are now going to let Cambridge grow in the way that like civilizationally leading cities have grown throughout history, in the way that the great American centers are growing now, basically going to give it everything it needs to do this. I mean, Oxford's did a question, but for Cambridge, this is all it, all it needs. And actually, one of the problems with lots of development, so one of the standard problems with development in Britain is because we greenbelt the high demand towns, development gets forced out to the far side of that greenbelt. And then you end up with these completely car-dependent, relatively undesirable, marginally viable dormitory towns, which nobody you know, thinks very well of. North Stowe outside Cambridge. Cambridge has its very own example of this being built by Homes England at the moment. Everyone laments it. It's one of the largest developments in the whole country. It's within easy driving distance of Cambridge, but there's no way you're going to walk from North Stowe to Cambridge or even cycle. You hardwire, I mean, basically the site allocation system hardwires bad urbanism into, into British development. Again, you know, we don't have clarity on sites, but there's some mood music from the department suggests they want to build contiguously with Cambridge. So just like do what we did for thousands of years and extend the city by adding on the edges of the city. That's a totally different proposition. So the western periphery of Cambridge is one and a half miles from King's College within walking distance. You can build something car independent there. And because people really want to live in Cambridge, they'll put up with you know, homes without cars as they do in London because it's just so valuable to be in this city. So you can really, I mean, if they want to, they can build the finest urban extension to a European city since the Second World War. There's nothing in the underlying geography or economics that makes that impossible. And that again, like, 
Oxford, Cambridge, ARC. Yeah, maybe there are ways of doing urbanistically good versions of that, but you're much more likely to end up with a string of North Stows if you're bringing out development in uh, huge swathes of the countryside between two cities than if you're just doing what obviously the market wants, which is to grow the city itself. What do you think of the politics of this? Why now? Is this a response to something Labour's doing or is this a kind of last hurrah of a government who thinks it's going to get voted out? It is partly a response to Labour's pro-housing noises. I'm sure Gove would, it's partly a legacy thing. I mean, if he, actually it sounds uncharitable, it's partly you know, because he thinks it's a good policy. And, you know, what an amazing thing. It reminds you of how much politicians can actually do. Maybe this one man, Michael Gove, because he's just made this decision, he will triple the size of Cambridge and solve one of this country's great problems. I mean, what a, what a thing, you know, if you believe in politics. I mean, I'm sure the government would like to fight the next election on Tory Brownfield versus Labour Greenfield. Mm. That's propitious ground for them if they can make it credible that they're really going to do stuff on Brownfield. If they can make it credible, we are just as pro-growth as Labour. We really believe in house building. We're going to build loads of houses. Look, we're building loads of houses or getting started on the process of building loads of houses already. But we also believe in densifying cities because it's more efficient, more environmentally sustainable, more positive urbanistically, all of which is in fact true. And which is also, of course, extremely convenient for the Conservative Party because it means they don't have to build in the Greenbelt seats, which are so electrically explosive for them. Kind of the ducks have lined up for the Conservative Party on this. And now what they've got to do is deliver on Cambridge and produce something on London, which is really credible. What do you think chances are of Cambridge actually happening? I mean, one Tory MP is already objecting to it. We seem to have been in kind of stasis with house building for so long. What, what do you think are the chances of delivery on this? I think it will happen. Mad for the government not to do anything now. It's seen as having had quite a good reception relative to you know, how house building announcements are usually treated. And I don't think Labour's going to repeal it. I mean, what a weird thing to do. Like, no, we don't believe in the Silicon Fen. We're going to scrap this giant house building scheme that the government's already taken the flack on politically. Whether it happens, the big questions are like, how fast it happens, how well it's done, how much of it they do. These big central government delivery vehicles don't have a great record for delivering at scale rapidly and at high densities. So there are definitely failure modes here. I think it will happen, but there's a sort of the low end of expectations would be what we end up is a kind of a string of small, you know, decent quality urban extensions around Cambridge what we're doing already, but a bit more than we're doing, substantially more than we're doing already. And then the maximalist option is that they really do triple the size of Cambridge over the next generation and solve the country's problems in this area. That will be a question of the energy and vigour and ambition of the government. I mean, you've written in, in an excellent article for CapEx about how this could be a discrete solution to the problem of Cambridge. But as you've also said, it would be a massive act of kind of central planning as sort of free marketeers, is that really the kind of answer that we should be looking for? It's kind of big central developments added on to cities, or is there a more sort of free market approach that we should be taking to solve the broader housing crisis? Well, we have to be very careful about the use of the free market here. So by default, the state bans all development in this country. <laughs> and then sometimes the central government forces the local governments to allow some development to happen. Weirdly, there is a very real sense in which the more like central, inverted commas, central planning we have, the less dirigiste the British state as a whole is being. The central government forcing the local government to roll back the state a little bit and let landowners follow market signals 
if we were back in the 19th century before we had um, the modern planning system, Cambridge would be growing rapidly. In terms of how they develop Cambridge, they could do it in a very centralized way, like massive compulsory purchase, uh, massive involvement of state vehicles doing all the work. In my own view, that has a, quite a bad record, and they should steer clear of that and look more at, obviously, there needs to be a public role in expanding a city, and you have to worry about street networks and infrastructure and public services, but relying more on the kind of traditional pre-planning system model of urban development, where a lot of it's value maximization by landowners, landowners getting the most out of their plots, just tends to produce better results. That is the element of truth I see in the central planning skepticism here. The other element I see is it is, I mean, this does involve a confrontation between central and local government. It's, of course, in a certain sense, it's obviously in the long-term interest of Cambridge to grow and to remain the great thing that it has been for eight centuries, you know, retain its kind of ascendancy in Western civilization as an intellectual center. But building houses is annoying. There's no way we can get away from this. And lots of people in Cambridge are going to be annoyed. And we've seen, you know, several MPs in Cambridge are very annoyed just politically, if MPs are like, okay, the government is now planning that the way it's going to deliver homes in this country is by fastening on some bit of the country and saying like, right, now the central government's going to override local government here and deliver masses of housing. And when we finish doing it there, we're going to move on to another parcel of the country and do it. Like In the long run, that's going to break down as a model. So it works for just because it will produce so much resistance from communities once they realize like it could be us next. It works with like an exceptional city like Cambridge. Developing Cambridge, it's kind of a piece of nationally significant infrastructure. It's so vital for the country as a whole that there's the kind of special considerations apply to this. But as a model for standard house building, it can't become the standard model by which the government delivers homes. I'm sure the government it must know that. If they want that to happen, they're going to have to look at different kinds of measures. I mean, as you were saying. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Building houses is always going to be annoying. You're always going to face local opposition wherever you try to put them. Is there not an argument that we just need to have a much more powerful means of overriding the needs of vocal minorities of local people when the needs of the country are so high? I think local people are just going to win that confrontation. 
people have made that argument since the 1960s. Samuel Watling did that very nice piece for Works in Progress on the history of housing politics in the United Kingdom recently. Every decade or a couple of times per decade, the central government tries to say, okay, look, you know, this country has a housing shortage. We really need to start making some communities accept a lot more houses. There's a great brouhaha and the central government loses. And sometimes we end up in a worse situation than we were in before, which is you know, kind of what's happened in the cycle of the last few years. You know, end up with a more restrictionist system because the backlash is so intense. I mean, we may well ask if we've got into a sensible system in this country where local communities see themselves as having a quasi-right provided by the state against disruptive development near them and where such a right is literally priced into the value of their homes. And we may well think this is not a very happy equilibrium for a society to have got itself into, but it is the one we find ourselves in, and it's a very hard one to get out of. And I, I'm, I'm just very skeptical that the frontal attack... I mean, we've got pretty good empirical evidence from 60 years of failure that the frontal attack model of changing that isn't going to succeed. So the model that people like yourself and other kind of organizations talk about bringing people along with you and persuading them is by making sure your developments include infrastructure and also with a lot of emphasis on the aesthetics. And this is something that I'm really interested in is where regulation and aesthetics intersect. It's kind of, you know, the, the sublime meets the regulator. And one of the reasons I feel like people got very excited about Cambridge is because it was accompanied by these kind of renderings, which looked very attractive, albeit it turned out these were actually made by AI and weren't from the government at all. What these kind of aesthetics are based on is, as, as you're saying, a kind of Belgravia model of a neighborhood, which suited the needs of the 19th century. And also with a vision of, you know, a specific architect centrally planned, Thomas Cubitt, for the benefit of a single landowner that in fact still owns that estate, the Grosvenor estate. So I just wonder if those kind of aesthetics are deliverable today or indeed even suitable. Yeah, so complicated. Um, I mean, so first I should say, I don't think it's the case that if you build beautifully, everyone will suddenly come out in support of we could build Cambridge just as it looked in those renderings that Sam Bowman and Robert Bollock generated earlier this week and flooded Twitter with. There would still be loads of resistance in Cambridge. That having been said, it, I mean, it was quite funny to watch the response to those. Like, it's just stuff. That, it was literally just Robert Bollock and Sam Bowman churned these things out on mid-journey yeah. <laughs> with no authority at all. Just flooded Twitter with. But they didn't with even images. look like Cambridge. They were not necessarily the most, you know, carefully indexed to <laughs> Cambridge architectural precedents. But they were lovely, and, you know, in as much as I haven't made particularly high claims for what Midjourney produces, but in a rough and ready way, lovely. People do respond to that. The skeptical response you get is, oh, well, but it won't actually look like that. And perhaps it won't, but it could. Like, there's no technical obstacle to building this stuff. Most of it's cheaper now than it would have been in the 19th century when you can mass produce so many of the details. You know, there is a real argument for the importance of that. In terms of the economics of it, it's a bit complicated. Um, so it's true that it's easiest when you have a unified landowner. So the basic economics here are owner of a building bears all the cost of making it beautiful, but the beauty of the building is a blessing for all the neighbors and everyone who walks past. And that's reflected in pricing data. There's lovely data on like front gardens that if someone puts a front garden in, it does slightly, substantially increase the value of like they've previously concreted over it and then they get rid of the concrete, put it in a lovely front garden. That does increase the value of their plot, but it also increases the value of all the other houses next to them because people like having front gardens next door. So there is a collective action problem when you have fragmented property ownership and then you will get market failure. 
I mean, Cambridge, it'd be interesting to look at a landowner map of the area near Cambridge. I think have only looked schematically at this. Um, there are big chunks of it that are owned by colleges and by relatively substantial institutional landowners. So those places you might get, you know, it's not as big as like the Grosvenor estate, but you could get some great estate effects in those. However, where you don't have you don't have unified ownership, there is a place for public intervention. Totally standard case of market failure, positive externality that the free market won't deliver. And there is a case for public authorities to say, okay, well, you have to deliver it then. If you want to build, you have to build subject to these rules. If these kinds of neighborhoods, your Belgravias, your Marlebones are so popular, why don't they get built? If this is what people want and people love living in these houses and they are hugely valuable, why don't they get built? It has partly to do with, so there's lots going on, but one thing is the factor I alluded to earlier about the site allocation system. What sites do we release in Britain? We release urban areas, really small brownfields, small, sometimes large brownfield sites. Those get developed typically to very high densities because brownfield land is quite scarce. It's expensive to remediate. And the local authorities want to deliver as much of their housing targets as possible through a small number of sites. So you put plants on those. Then, you know, what else do we release? Like, we don't really release land on the urban periphery of London. We don't release much land on the urban periphery of Oxford and Cambridge. There have been some sites recently which have had led to developments of, of a relatively high standard. Generally, we displace development to the far side of green belts, where it ends up being necessarily car dependent and where it's also just much less desirable. So you don't have the uh, much, much value to play with. And those aren't, it's not that they're like scary, like crazy modernist styles. Or like most English housing is produced in traditional styles today. And look at any of the websites of the standard house builders and they're sort of arts and craft kind of. Uh, but the urban form that the site allocation system imposes upon them is one that is totally different to a Belgravia or a Marlborough or even to an Edwardian commuter town. And you do get urban extensions for sort of basically poorer towns that are politically weaker and can't resist having development imposed on them, where the local authority desperately needs money and so it does it for the Section 106 that it gets. But there again, you tend to be looking at, like, if these places don't have really high demand, then people just won't put up with the inconvenience of not having a car. So they won't buy unless they get plenty of parking. And if they get plenty of parking, then you're wiring in this kind of modern housing estate urbanism, mm. and you're not going to get the kind of lovely character of Marlborough or Belgravia. And basically, we just don't release sites that have the underlying geographical and economic properties of those great estate neighborhoods. And one of the really interesting features of Cambridge is it kind of does have those characteristics. Like here's somewhere where the land values are probably higher than they were in, certainly higher than they were in Marlborough or Belgravia in the 19th century, which is closer to the center of Cambridge than Belgravia is to the center of London. They could build Marlborough on the western side of Cambridge and people would buy there. Kind of a unique opportunity in economic and geographical terms for building something with really good urbanism. There's other stuff going on. There are architectural style questions. There are questions about, you know, whether the building industries, if you want to build something in like the manner of late Georgian um, classical Belgravia, the building industry isn't going to have all the skills that it had honed over a century and a half in that style in the 1840s. So there are other considerations here. But some of the key ones are actually not present in the I mean, Cambridge is a special opportunity in some respects. Well, Samuel, I think that's a positive note on which to end, a, a unique opportunity 
to do something for Cambridge, though I think to anyone who's been watching planning policy for the past decade or two, we might have rather more cause for pessimism. But Samuel, it's been fascinating to talk to you and to those listening at home. I hope you enjoyed it. Do subscribe, leave us a review and share with your friends if you enjoy the CapEx podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.